podcast with me, Father Andrew Eburn. This week it is Trinity Sunday, so let's begin with St. Patrick's great prayer to the Holy Trinity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I bind unto myself today the strong name of the Trinity, by invocation of the same, the three in one and one in three, of whom all nature hath creation, eternal Father, Spirit, Word. Praise to the Lord of my salvation. Salvation is of Christ the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This week's podcast is a little different in format. As I say, it is Trinity Sunday, and I have to admit that, having started to talk about the Trinity in my homily, I got so carried away that I didn't leave myself time to talk about anything else. So I hope that this account of the great mystery of our faith, the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity, will be of some use to you. Do let me know if it is, or indeed if it isn't. So I'll begin by proclaiming the Gospel for this Sunday. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus said to Nicodemus, God loved the world so much that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not be lost, but may have eternal life. For God sent his Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but so that through him the world might be saved. No one who believes in him will be condemned, but whoever refuses to believe is condemned already, because he has refused to believe in the name of God's only Son. The Gospel of the Lord Every once in a while I have the opportunity to celebrate Mass at the primary school, a lovely little school just a mile or so from the cathedral in Norwich. Now, celebrating Mass for children is both a joy and a challenge, Children have different levels of knowledge and engagement, and you never quite know how that knowledge is going to show itself and where that engagement is going to take you. You're not quite sure, in short, what they are going to do. And that's fine. They're children. However, when the Mass begins, they will, all of them, almost without exception, join with me in one thing. And the one thing that pretty much all the children join in with is making the sign of the cross. One of the first things we learn to do as Catholics is to learn how to make the sign of the cross. So we might say then that one of the first things we learn to do as Catholics is to do the Trinity. But actually, if you think about it, our first encounter with the Trinity comes earlier even than primary school, and it is the beginning of our Christian life. It is, of course, baptism. You may remember Jesus in his great commission to the disciples command them and us to go out into the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, baptizing in the name of the Most Holy Trinity. So the Trinity is of the essence of baptism, And you may know that in the case of emergency and danger of death, for example, anyone can perform a baptism. 
if, for example, I don't know, a child was in danger of death and hadn't been baptized and there was no priest available, any lay Catholic can then baptize that child. And all that is required, the only things that are absolutely necessary, are water and what we call the Trinitarian formula, those words invoking the Trinity that Jesus himself has told us to use. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Of course, baptisms are very often important and memorable occasions in the life of the human family. If you were baptized as a child or a baby, although you probably won't remember the occasion, you or your family will almost certainly have photographs of the baptism. Um, the parents and godparents are probably wearing their Sunday best and, and the baby likewise. But baptism is more important because of the awesome way in which it extends the family, the way in which it extends our family. Because in baptism we are made adopted children of the Father. In the baptism of Jesus, you may remember, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove and the voice of the Father is heard, claiming Jesus as his Son. This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so it is with us at our baptism. As the Catechism teaches, we become in baptism a child of God. A child of God entitled to say the prayer of the children of God, our Father. And at that moment, we stop being mere creatures. We don't stop being creatures, but we stop being just creatures. And we start being children. This is what the Trinity does to us. The Trinity makes us children of God. And the extraordinary thing is that this transition in our lives from being creatures to being children mirrors a transition in the whole progress of salvation history, in the history of the world and everything in it. Because when God enters into a covenant with Abraham in the book of Genesis and then renews and extends that covenant through Moses in the book of Exodus, when this happens, a dramatic change takes place and God, the Creator, becomes God the Father. The same change taking place on a global metaphysical scale. And St. Paul talks at length about this fatherhood of God and how we receive it in Christ through the Holy Spirit. God sent forth his Son so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And there's the Holy Trinity at work again, making us children of God. St. Augustine said, that you can find the Holy Trinity throughout creation, imprinted on created things. And so it's worth perhaps considering how that might be true of us, of our own lives. After all, we are created in the image of God. That is such a commonplace thought, isn't it? And yet, such an awesome one. We are created in the image of God. How often do we ponder on that mystery do we ever wonder, for example, just how we image God, how we image his divine life? If we start to ask ourselves this question, 
then we will see, I hope, that we do not image the life of God in abstract or simply theoretical ways. We might start with the abstract, but we would have to move on from this. And that's helpful when we think about the Holy Trinity. So if we take, for example, perhaps the most distinguished theologian living today, who I would suggest is the Emeritus, Pope Benedict, Pope Benedict tells us that God is not solitude, but perfect communion. God is not solitude, but perfect communion. And Pope Benedict then expands on this. God is not infinite solitude, but communion of light and love. Light given and received in an eternal dialogue between the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit. Lover, loved and love. Now, that might sound, I grant you, on first hearing, uh, terribly abstract. But let's just think about it for a moment. At the heart of the divine life, there is communion, which is relationship and relatedness, the relationship of father and son and of the love they share. This should be an awesome insight for us, this truth about the life of God and the life of love. In the life of God, love is imaged and lives through filiarity, through parent-child relationship. In the life of God, in fact, love is imaged through family relationship. We talk, of course, about the holy family of Jesus, Mary and Joseph. But in fact, there is an even holier family at the heart of our faith, and that is the Most Holy Trinity. Pope St. John Paul II taught this truth beautifully when he said, God in his deepest mystery is not a solitude but a family, since he has in himself fatherhood, sonship, and the essence of the family which is love. Now we've all heard, I'm sure, the many different analogies that people have come up with over the years to try and explain the Trinity. Um, so you have... Um, water, gas and ice, or you have the three-leafed clover, or you have the egg that is yolk and egg white and eggshell all at the same time. Now, uh, none of these, as I'm sure you'll agree, really actually work. Uh, I'm sure they have a role to play, perhaps, for example, in showing children how three things can something sometimes be one thing in nature, but it won't do to push them very far because these analogies just break down. And it certainly won't do to leave our understanding at this point to think that if you solve the maths of the Trinity, you finish the job. Now, of course, all of these analogies are going to be inadequate because the most holy Trinity is a mystery. And we'll come back to that word. Even St. Augustine, who wrote one of the greatest books on the Trinity uh, 1,600 years ago, in, in or around the year 420, a book that has scarcely been bettered since. Even St. Augustine said that all the analogies he came up with were immeasurably inadequate to describe the reality of the Trinity. Anyway, one of the particular reasons why these familiar analogies we've all heard of water or, or clover, why they are inadequate is because they are inanimate. They miss out the quality of personhood and of the natural concomitant to personhood, which is a life 
lived in relationship, a life lived in communion. Persons or people live in relationship. And so does the Holy Trinity, which is, after all, three persons in one. God, in his deepest mystery, is not a solitude but a family, since he has in himself fatherhood, sonship, and the essence of the family, which is love. The Trinity is a communion. We have to keep returning to this. And yes, to be sure, this is a mystery. This is a theological mystery, one of the greatest theological mysteries. People I know get hung up on this word, mystery. When you mention it, you see them sort of sheer away from it. But it's not actually that complicated. So perhaps perhaps let's just have a little excursion, a little sidestep to deal with this word mystery. Okay, so we're talking theology here, so obviously it is not a mystery in the secular sense, like a murder mystery, something elusive or spooky that only a big brain like Sherlock Holmes or Hercule Poirot can get their head around. A mystery, rather, is a truth about God known only through divine revelation, not by reason or philosophy. That is to say, a mystery is something we know because God reveals it, not something we know because we penetrate it with our reason. It's not, mind you, that it is unreasonable, it's just that reason alone is not enough. Or to use my my earlier analogy, it's not that only Sherlock Holmes or Poirot can get their head around the mystery of the Trinity or the Incarnation or whatever, it's that no one can get his or her head around the mystery of the Trinity or the Incarnation, not even extraordinary and holy theologians like St. Augustine or St. Thomas Aquinas. Because the mysteries of faith concern the nature of God himself. And if you and I could get our head around God, he would not be God. Actually, St. Augustine did work that one out when he said, if you understood him, he would not be God. But if we're tempted to dismiss all this as, as purely academic or simply the preserver theologians, we should think again. The mysteries of faith are not, as I said, like the secular idea of mystery, but there are mysteries in the ordinary secular world as well as in the world of theology. Or, to be more accurate, there are natural mysteries and there are supernatural mysteries. The supernatural mysteries are, as I mentioned, the Most Holy Trinity, the Incarnation, and the mystery of divine grace, and they are at the heart of our faith. They are woven through the fabric of our life of faith. But there are also natural mysteries woven through our life as well. So uh, the natural mystery of time, for example. How does time begin? How does it end? Etc. Etc. Or, or even more obvious, the natural mystery of love. Why do people fall in love? Why does it make them do what they do? How does love enable parents to do what they do? What is it anyway? All these questions that science has never been able to answer. And no one, I think, is especially bothered or perplexed by that failure. So, if we can live with the natural mysteries of love, time, life, 
space, etc., etc., perhaps we should learn to live a little more comfortably, so to speak, with the supernatural mysteries and the great mysteries of our faith. It's okay not to be able to fully get our heads around them because that is their nature. And so back to the mystery of the Trinity, and if I can remind you again of those words of Pope St. John Paul II, God in his deepest mystery is not a solitude but a family, since he has in himself fatherhood, sonship, and the essence of the family which is love. Divine life is not lived in solitude, but in communion. And because we are created in the image of God, the same is true for us. This profound truth of the Trinity is lived out in our lives, all through our lives. We cannot live in absolute solitude. We cannot live only for ourselves, doing only what will make us happy. Because it turns out doing only what will make us happy will not, in fact, make us happy. You may have experienced this in your life. I've certainly experienced it in mine. Doing only what will make us happy will not, in fact, make us happy. And this is, by the way, just yet another area where the secular world and its plan for life need to learn from the church. Living only for yourself will not make you happy. We have to live in communion, and we have to live lives of self-offering, lives of self-giving, giving to others. We have to live lives of love, in short, which means living like the Trinity. One of the most famous icons ever painted is an icon of the Holy Trinity, the icon of the Holy Trinity painted by Andrei Rublev, the great Russian icon painter from the early 15th century. Now, you may know this icon, but if you don't, I really encourage you to take a look at it. Just Google um, Rublev Holy Trinity and you'll soon find it. Anyway, as you will see, the icon depicts the encounter of Abraham with God at the Oaks of Mamre. When Abraham is visited by three divine figures who tell him of his future and of God's covenant with them, the covenant we mentioned earlier. And the fathers of the church rightly saw in this encounter a revelation of the Holy Trinity. And in the account of this meeting in Genesis, it's in Genesis chapter 18 if you want to take a look at it, uh, Abraham prepares a sacrificial meal for the three divine figures, but then humbly stands apart from them while they sit and eat it. And Rublev's icon shows those three figures seated at the table, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, forming a perfect circle around the table. And in the centre of the table is the sacrificial meal, the cup of the Eucharist, which is the gift and the work of the Holy Trinity. So there you have Father, Son and Holy Spirit seated at the table of the Eucharist. But in the icon, there are actually four seats at the table. The fourth seat at the table of the Eucharist is left vacant, because the fourth seat is for you and I. Not to stand apart like Abraham, but to become intimately part of that divine communion and that divine love. This is the truth realized by Rublev and his icon, God the Father, 
God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are a communion of love, revealed in that other great mystery of the Church, the Incarnation, and shared with us in that great mystery which is in turn the fruit of the Incarnation, which is, of course, the Eucharist. God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are a communion of love into which we are always invited to live in love, to live in communion with the Trinity. It turns out then that the Most Holy Trinity is not just a great mystery, but the very pattern for our life itself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And so, as we come to the end of this podcast, thank you so much for being with me. Do remember to click the follow button and follow this podcast if you don't do so already. And as always, do get in touch with any comments or questions you have, any suggestions for things we ought to cover. Uh, You can comment via the podcast app, or you can reach me on my Diocese of East Anglia email address, which is andrew.eburn at rcdea.org.uk. And I will upload another episode next Sunday, and I look forward to joining you then. Let's end then, as we always do, with the prayer of our Lord. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.